We are in the Gospel of Matthew. If you'd open your Bible this morning to Matthew chapter 9. And then uh, at the end of our study this morning, uh, we, we are baptizing three individuals. And so hold on to your seats when we're done. Uh, it won't take long, and we'd like you to witness that. But uh, for right now, we're in Matthew chapter 9. We're in verses 9 through 17. The topic, Jesus tells the disciples of John the Baptist that it was a time for feasting, not fasting. The title of our message, Life in the Feast Lane. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, we, uh, I love that phrase that, Jesus, that you used in the book of the Revelation where you, at the end of each letter, said to the churches, he that has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. Uh, we want to be those people individually and corporately today that listen with the Spirit of God and hear what you're saying. We thank you in Jesus' name. And those who agreed said, amen. The headline read, with this onion ring, IV wed. A couple in England held their wedding reception at the local McDonald's where they had first met. The groom had a chicken sandwich and a strawberry milkshake while the bride went for the McNuggets and a Coke. That's my kind of gal. Total cost for them and their 33 guests, if you're planning a wedding, $245. Hey, I'd go. I've had worse than McDonald's food at wedding receptions, I'm just saying. But anyway, we're gonna be looking at a feast in our text. Matthew gets called away from his career as a tax collector to follow the Lord, and he throws Jesus a feast. Those who fancy themselves more religious, more spiritual, complain. The first complaint is about the guest list. All of those around the table are sinners. They're notorious sinners by occupation and by character who the more religious would exclude from any feast. The second complaint is about the feast itself as the critics argue that fasting is more spiritual than feasting. Jesus explains to them and to us that a relationship with him is more like a feast than a fast. It is more like a wedding feast, in fact. And so the question this morning is, are you feasting with Jesus? I'll explore that question, organizing my thoughts around two points. Number one, your life without Jesus is a farce. Come to the feast. And number two, your life with Jesus is a feast. Don't succumb to the fast. Let's take a look, first of all, in verses 9 through 13 about life being a farce without the Lord. Now, Brian Sumner, some of you have heard of him. He's a world-famous skateboarder. He lived an angry, empty life. He wanted to kill himself. He was out to prove that God did not exist. He said of himself, and I quote, while making money, while traveling the world, while living the so-called dream with skateboards and gear with your name on it, I had no clue about anything really. The thing that mattered most, my marriage and family had failed, and I was frustrated. Sumner came to Christ and now testifies of God's grace in saving him. Testimonies abound of the emptiness of life despite worldly success, wealth, and fame. I'm calling life without Jesus a farce in the sense that you are seeking to fill a longing to satisfy a deep spiritual hunger with things that are insufficient to do so in the end. What you are seeking to fill is the eternity God has placed in your heart, and that requires a personal relationship with him. I'm calling it a farce. King Solomon called it vanity as he searched for meaning outside of a relationship with God. He, he looked in every possible worldly place that you could look for purpose and meaning, and he said it was all vanity and vexation of spirit. 
The Apostle Paul called his life and his accomplishments, though they were great, he called those that were prior to meeting Jesus, he said they were a pile of garbage. Perhaps Rob Evans put it best, though. You probably know him by his stage name, The Donut Man. How many of you remember The Donut Man? All right, you can help me right now. His signature song goes like this. I expect you to sing with me, unlike first service. Life without Jesus is like a donut, like a donut, like a donut. Life without Jesus is like a donut. There's a hole in the middle of your heart. All right, there you go. Thank you, Pastor Gene. If you remember anything, you'll remember not to come back. But anyway, Matthew's life was a farce. It was a vanity. It was a pile of garbage until the hole in the middle of his heart was filled by Jesus Christ. This passage is his testimony and its immediate aftermath. And so verse nine, as Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax office and he said to him, follow me. So he arose and followed him. Tax collectors were even more despised in the first century than they are today. For one thing, they were Jews in the employ of the Roman government and thus were considered traitors. Besides that, tax collectors worked on the Sabbath and they had close associations with Gentiles, rendering them defiled lawbreakers in the eyes of their countrymen. The tax business was a franchise and tax collectors made their profit by exacting as much tax as they could above and beyond what the Romans required. In Capernaum, Matthew would probably have set up a booth, not unlike a modern toll booth, either along the main drag or at the port. Posted there, he and his associates would tax the goods being imported and exported or passing to and fro. It's safe to assume Matthew already knew who Jesus was, but that takes away nothing from his immediate obedience to the Lord. He got up, not just from his job, but from his entire life, and he joined these Jesus followers. Nothing would ever be the same for Matthew from that moment on. Many of us have had a crisis experience like that with the Lord. We heard the gospel, we responded to it, our sins were forgiven, our heavenly account was filled with the righteousness of Jesus Christ, God the Holy Spirit came to live inside of us, our lives were transformed in a moment as we were transferred from darkness to light and from death to life. Now verse 10 says, it happened as Jesus sat at the table in the house that behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and sat down with him and his disciples. From the gospels of Mark and Luke, we learned that this was in fact Matthew's house. Matthew's a little bit humble. He doesn't really bring himself into it that much. Luke describes it as a great feast, not just a feast, but a great feast, indicating what we already know about Matthew as a tax collector, that he was extremely well off. Now, we don't know if this feast was thrown that same day or some time afterward. It may well be that there was a constant feast at Matthew's house. It's not unusual for the rich to have guests constantly in their home partying. What else do they have to do but divert themselves from the aching in their hearts that there must be more to life? Some of you come out of a party lifestyle. You understand what I'm talking about. And though sin was pleasurable for a season, there was always a longing and emptiness in your life. You were always looking for something that could only be filled in a relationship with God. 
Matthew's guests were fellow tax collectors and were told sinners. Now, we're all sinners. The use of the word in this verse means the guests were considered by those who seemed to be spiritual to be sinners who were outside of the scope of God's concern. I mean, the Pharisees didn't go around saying, well, I know we're all sinners. They, they didn't consider themselves in that category at all. We ought never to think of anyone as too far gone or too great a sinner to be affected by God's saving grace. And simultaneously, we must fight the natural tendency to think of ourselves as more spiritual than other sinners. Uh, It's just kind of a natural thing to think you're better off than the average sinner. Air quotes. You love air quotes? They're kind of cool. The average sinner. Uh, When in reality, we should just have compassion on them and be reaching out to them. Verse 11. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Now, this feast was going on in a courtyard that could be seen by bystanders and passersby. Think of it like the food court at the mall, only with edible food. The accusation was that if Jesus really were a teacher sent from God, he would know better than to associate with such people. We are to be separate from the world and to pursue holiness. But separation is not isolation. Jesus didn't call us out of the world. He left us in the world to make a difference. Just be sure that among sinners, your holiness is contagious rather than you being stumbled by their sin. That's the the trick. And the only way that that's gonna happen is if you are genuinely in love with Jesus and you prefer your walk with him to anything that the world has to offer you. Verse 12, when Jesus heard that, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Now, besides being a great mission statement, and it is, this was a dig at the Pharisees in a very peculiar way. They were the spiritual PhDs of their day. They were the doctors of religion. Uh, Some among them were even considered doctors of the law. But they refused to be of any help to those in need. Instead, they put greater burdens on people than carefully but critically kept their distance. They were like plastic surgeons in Beverly Hills when the world needed triage doctors in field hospitals. Can you imagine going to your doctor with some condition, some serious condition, and he gets all your symptoms and all that, and, and then Doc, what are you gonna do? He says, I'm not gonna do anything. I'm just glad I'm not like you. I'm pretty healthy. You you need to get out of here. I don't ever want to see you again. It it sounds silly, but that's what Jesus was doing. He was saying, hey, you guys are the doctors, right? If you were medical doctors, you'd be among sick people. So how come as doctors of religion, you only huddle together with your own kind and you're letting sinners go to hell? It says, verse 13, but go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Zing. Go and learn what this means was a very peculiar expression teachers used to correct their students when they misunderstood or misinterpreted scripture. And so Jesus elevates himself to the teacher of the teachers. And he says, you guys don't have any idea what Hosea 6.6 means. Uh, And he said, go study that for its true meaning which you have obviously not grasped. And further, by directing them to this passage in Hosea, Jesus is putting them in the same category of its original recipients who were apostate Jews in rebellion to God. 
Now, under the Jewish law, the law of Moses, God did require sacrifice, but sacrifices laid on the altar were no substitute for godly behavior. In any dispensation, God desires heart, righteousness, and obedience, and not mere religious ritual. If there's a choice between the two, show mercy. If you can do both of them, that's great. And so he was saying to the Pharisees, go ahead and make your sacrifices, follow your rituals, but never to the exclusion of things like mercy, which would express itself in compassion and empathy and real help for sinners. What good is it to be a doctor of the law and not apply the law where it's most needed? Who would want to study to be a doctor and go through all of that that you have to go through and specialists and all that and then decide you're never gonna treat any patients because you, you just, it was for the joy of being able to have the knowledge. It, it just, it doesn't make sense. Now the righteous in verse 13 refers to those like the Pharisees who believe themselves to be right with God on account of their keeping of both required sacrifices and traditional rituals that they had added to the scriptures in order to appear even more spiritual. One of the great evangelistic texts of the New Testament is Revelation 3.20 where Jesus says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. The feast Matthew held for Jesus is a physical representation of that spiritual truth. It is that verse in action. Jesus called to Matthew, knocking on the door of his heart, inviting him to salvation. Matthew responded to the gracious invitation. He opened the door, he was saved, and he found himself feasting with the Lord, both spiritually and physically. The feast extended to others as Matthew was transformed and desired to give testimony of the love of God in Jesus, forgiving his sins and giving his life purpose and meaning. Someone pointed out that the unsaved are more likely to come to a supper than they are to a sermon. At any rate, the first thing Matthew wanted to do after he got saved and left his old life was to bring all those he had had relationship with who he knew had great need, who were overlooked by the religious leaders of their day, and introduce them to Jesus Christ. Matthew's life had been a farce. It had been vanity. It was garbage. He was wealthy. He was worldly. The party never stopped at his house, but he lived in that donut hole, having eternity in his heart that could only be filled in a relationship with God. The spiritual doctors of his generation were all plastic surgeons who made themselves look better on the outside. They had nothing to offer Matthew except condemnation. Jesus knocked. Matthew opened. His heart was satisfied. Life had become the feast God intended it to be all along. Now, he wasn't feasting for long before somebody came along and said, fasting is more spiritual than feasting. And that brings us to our second point. Your life with Jesus is a fast, don't suc- or feast rather, don't succumb to the fast. Just when you seem to be enjoying your relationship with the Lord, someone will invariably come along and suggest that the honeymoon is over, it's time to grow up and get spiritual by adding certain religious traditions or rituals to your walk with Jesus. It's time, they insist, to push away from the table and get down to more serious business. I I told this little bit of information first service that seemed to amaze people, but it's true. Um, More so in Southern California than I've heard it here, but you probably don't know this, but um, there are certain groups that consider Calvary Chapel kind of an initiation into the Christian life. Uh, They say things like, 
Uh, Calvary Chapel's a good place for people to get saved and kind of experience a few things, but in order to really grow and really mature and really know the Lord, you, you need to, to leave and go to a, a real church. And usually they mean a church that emphasizes more of the intellect, more uh, of uh, certain doctrines that uh, you know, are, are emphasized, or a Pentecostal church where there are some greater experiences and such. And so uh, people come along and say, hey, you need to push away from the table now. That was all well and good. I, I know you're excited about walking with the Lord and hearing the simple gospel and being taught the word of God and all that, but we really, we need to grow now. And the sad thing is, what I've seen over the years when people fall into that trap is they, they, especially towards the intellectualism, they get into a greater intellectualism and all of these different things. Uh, they're no smarter, they just seem more intellectual. They use words you can't understand. Uh, they quit reaching out to people and they become more pharisaical. All they do is sit around and they talk about their own little doctrines and then they criticize other people's doctrines and no one's really getting saved, no one's really getting ministered to. And so at some point, in some way, you're gonna be challenged to quit feasting and get into more of a fasting kind of a lifestyle. In Matthew's case, that push came from the disciples of John the Baptist. Verse 14, then the disciples of John came to him saying, why do we and the Pharisees fast often but your disciples don't fast? Well, in the law of Moses, the Jews were commanded to fast once a year on the Day of Atonement. There were other times in their history when a fast was called, usually times of extreme spiritual stress when they were seeking the presence of God to deliver them from some danger. So you could fast whenever you wanted to, but you were only required to fast once a year. Now, by the first century, those who considered themselves more spiritual had adopted a program of twice weekly fasting. There were two fast days a week, and if you were really spiritual, you observed those days. And some who fasted, they made a big show of it, letting others know they were fasting in order to seem more spiritual. They didn't only want to be more spiritual, they wanted to look more spiritual to others. Now, I want to think that the disciples of John were sincere in this question. They had adopted this modern tradition, as had the Pharisees, but let's say that they had more honest motives because after all, John was a good guy and they were his disciples. But at any rate, they were troubled that Jesus and his disciples did not fast. That's what they said. Now, we know that both Jesus and his disciples did fast on occasion. The Lord fasted for at least 40 days at one point in his ministry when he was tempted by the devil. And he would later instruct his disciples that certain demons could only be exorcised, he said, by prayer and fasting. And so it wasn't that they never fasted, it's that they didn't observe the regular traditional fast uh, that the Pharisees and the disciples of John the Baptist had adopted. We seem obsessed with figuring out who is more spiritual by making external measurements. Nothing you see externally can really reveal what is in the heart. And so people can go through all of the motions of spirituality, but not even really be saved, let alone be spiritual. And so verse 15, Jesus said to them, can the friends of the bridegroom mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? But the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast. Now, I love it that Jesus always met people right where they were at. John the Baptist had announced to the world, including his disciples, that Jesus Christ was like a bridegroom 
and that he, Jesus, or John rather, was merely a friend of the bridegroom. That was one of the ways he introduced Jesus. He said, he's the bridegroom and I'm a friend of the bridegroom. And so Jesus used John's own illustration to answer John's disciples. It was a show of respect for John, but one that would draw the logical conclusion of his teaching. He was basically saying, hey guys, your teacher told you that I was like a bridegroom, and so shouldn't I act like a bridegroom, and shouldn't disciples of mine act like friends of the bridegroom? As long as Jesus was among them, they were like a wedding party and ought to be feasting, not fasting. Who goes to a wedding reception and fasts? Now, if you're a parent, you would love that, especially if you're paying. But the wedding reception, hey, let's go, let's eat, let's have a good time. Now, the bridegroom illustration is pretty powerful in that the Jews would have also understood Jesus to be pointing to a verse in Isaiah I'll read it to you. It's Isaiah 61.10. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself with ornaments and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. Now, it's from a larger passage that describes the coming Jewish Messiah by comparing him to the bridegroom and God's people to the bride. And so Jesus in getting into this illustration, it's not just agreeing with John, he's saying, I am that bridegroom that is prophesied in the Old Testament. Something else to notice is that normally fasting is a discipline intended to in some way renew a sense of God's presence among us. By insisting there was no need for ritual fasting while he was on the earth, Jesus is indicating that he was in fact God in human flesh. He's kind of saying, why would you fast to, find, to get the presence of God when I'm here? Uh, and, and so these are powerful, powerful words. Now, Jesus also anticipated what we know, that the Jews would reject his offer of the kingdom. And he says, for a time, I'll be taken away. We live in that time when Jesus has been taken away. He ascended into heaven. And so it says, then we will fast. That means fasting does endure as a spiritual discipline. And we do see disciples fasting in the book of Acts after the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus Christ. Uh, And so we can say it's safe to continue fasting. So why are we saying then that walking with the Lord ought to be a feast and not a fast? Well, it's because of what Jesus said next to clarify what he meant. He kind of gives us an overview of what he's talking about. In verse 16, he says, no one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment For the patch pulls away from the garment and the tear is made worse. Nor do they put new wine into old wineskins or else the wineskins break, the wine is spilled and the wineskins are ruined. They put new wine into new wineskins and both are preserved. Now bear in mind Jesus has been talking about a bridegroom and a wedding feast. When he talks about this garment and the wine, he's still talking about a bridegroom and a wedding feast. In one of his parables, Jesus describes a wedding feast whose guests are all given a particular garment to wear, a new garment that identifies them as guests. Then remember that his first miracle was turning water into wine at a wedding in Canaan. So it appears that Jesus is saying that while fasting will continue as one of the spiritual disciplines you can practice, In his absence, the overall theme of our lives ought to be that of feasting with him as our heavenly bridegroom. 
Now the illustrations of the cloth and the uh, wineskin are obvious enough. If you patch an old garment with a new piece of cloth that hasn't shrunk yet, when it shrinks, it'll pull away and tear. Likewise, if you pour unfermented juice into an old brittle wineskin, as it ferments and starts to emit gases and expand, it will uh, burst that old wineskin. And in both cases, uh, what you had in mind isn't going to work out. Now, Jesus had just predicted that he would be rejected by the Jews. In a little while in the Gospel of Matthew, in chapter 16, he's going to predict the church. It's a new called out people that was a mystery until the New Testament. Because Jesus offered Israel the kingdom on earth and they rejected it, God has put his program with Israel on temporary hold and he's calling out a new people, the church. A whole new thing is going on. Then he will take us out of the world and he will renew his dealings with Israel. And so that's what Jesus is referring to. He's telling the disciples of John that the life he was offering in relationship with him is not going to be a reformation of Judaism, but it's going to be a whole new way of living and approaching life in the church age. One commentator put it like this. The patch and the new wine are images of a powerful, effervescent new relationship with God which bursts out of the dried up confines of formal religion. What I get out of all this is that even though absent, Jesus wants us to be robed and ready, filled with the Spirit as he is going to return. Our time on earth waiting for him may include spiritual disciplines like fasting, but overall it is to be more feast-like even when we must endure tribulations and sufferings and afflictions. Keeping with Jewish wedding customs, in other passages we learn that we are to think of ourselves constantly as being betrothed to Jesus Christ. He is the absent bridegroom who could return suddenly at any moment to take us to the wedding. And so while we may be suffering, while we may be fasting, while we may practice different disciplines of the Christian life, overarching all of that, the overall theme is when I wake up in the morning and when I go to bed at night, I am the bride of Jesus Christ. He could come back for me at any moment and I should be excited and happy and filled with the Spirit. When you're engaged, waiting for the big day, are you mourning and morose or are you excited with anticipation? Well, if you're not excited with anticipation, you'd better call off the wedding. And if you run into a, 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 you know, a, a bride-to-be and say, hey, how you doing? I, I feel miserable. Why? My wedding's 30 days away. Oh, because you want it to come sooner? No, I don't want it to come at all. Well, you better get out of that relationship. No, you're excited and, and, and you're, you know, you're, checking off things, you're reading bridal magazines, that's the, that's, that's the difference. Jesus says there's a lot of things that are gonna be happening in your life that might require personal discipline, you might have to fast and pray and do all this, but generally speaking, consider yourself a bride waiting for her groom. Your life is to be more a feast than a fast. Don't succumb to those who would seek to burden you with disciplines claiming it will make you more spiritual. Everybody's got their program that is going to make you more spiritual and it almost always has to do with something that can be seen externally that you can point to and say, I do this and I'm spiritual. And I thank you that I'm not like other normal people. 
but that I'm so much more spiritual than them. And so you need to avoid that. Now, again, I'm not suggesting we live completely undisciplined lives, not at all. I am saying that walking around as if you were attending a funeral rather than waiting for your wedding is not what the Lord intends for you. It's not spiritual, it's carnal. And there there are a couple of movements today where people are kind of going back to a more funeral attitude. Uh, There's a movement in Christianity today to a more... uh, liturgical, legalistic uh, relationship with God through Jesus Christ that has rites and rituals from you know, ancient medieval churches and uh, you know, written prayers and memorizing this. And, and people go to those services and, they, and they, for some reason they feel more spiritual. And the reason is, is because it appeals to the flesh. You think you've done something. And when the Lord says, no, you just need to be someone. You just need to be my bride. And so it can come in a variety of different ways into your life or into the life of a church, but we need to remain a feasting people. We might fast, but we're not gonna act like we're going to a funeral. Isn't it, wouldn't it be terrible to bring, to not, if you're bringing somebody to church and, and when they leave, they think, man, you guys are, about, you're, like you're, you're going to baptize, baptize people in lemon juice. You're all, you know, I don't wanna be like that. Who wants to be like that? That's personality aside. I'm not just talking about personality, but I mean, some churches are so morbid. They're like, it's like attending a funeral every week. I don't like attending funerals at all. I like preaching at funerals. They're kind of fun because people are freaked out, but it's when you have a really captive audience. Weddings, it's just a personal thing with me pastorally. I'm, I'm your friend. I can share this. Weddings are tough because no one cares what I have to say at a wedding. And so, you know, just let's get to the I do's and I want to kiss my bride and, and we want to do what? We want to feast. You know, so this is all like mumbo jumbo, but a funeral. I love funerals because you look people right in the eye and say, you're going to die. Joe is dead and you're going to be dead. You could be dead any second now. I love it. It's fantastic. People are like, who is this guy? It's the guy that's telling you you're going to be dead any minute now. But it's true. Life is but a vapor. It appears for a moment and then it vanishes away. Captive audience. I love it. And so uh, we don't want to go around like we're attending a funeral. If, If your church service becomes like a funeral, then that's not good. It should be like a feast. Maybe this will help. The disciples of John were in one sense following the fasting Pharisees instead of the feasting bridegroom. So John is in prison at this time. The disciples of John have a decision to make. Do we want to follow Jesus or do we want to keep doing the things that the Pharisees do? And up to that point, they felt more comfortable following the Pharisees. Even though they had no sympathy for them, they fell off on the side of, well, this must be more spiritual. Fasting has got to be more spiritual than feasting with sinners. And Jesus said, yeah, it's not. It's not. The habits and practices and disciplines of our life, are we following fasting Pharisees or are we following the feasting bridegroom? That's all that's important. Let's pray.